The Public Money Pod is a production of the Center for Municipal Finance at the University of Chicago's Harris School of Public Policy. It's made possible in part by our sponsors, Build America Mutual, Cumberland Advisors, and the Government Finance Officers Association. State and local governments spend about $4 trillion each year. That's trillion with a T. Did you ever ask yourself, where does all that money come from? And where does it go? Who manages it? And what do citizens and taxpayers have to show for it? In this podcast, we explore the budgets, bonds, and bureaucrats at the heart of state and local government finance. This is the Public Money Pod. Well, welcome back to the Public Money Pod. I'm Justin Marlowe, joined as always by chicken cosmetologist and fantasy football passive general manager and bona fide state and local fiscal policy wonk, Liz Farmer. Liz, welcome back. Thanks, Justin. And I, I appreciate the, uh, the the new title add-on. <laughs> of course, of course. We, we, we talk a lot about the goings-on in Smithburg, Maryland. I'll tell you, we were doing some shopping in downtown Chicago this weekend. And you know, we've talked several times here on the pod about the future of downtowns and the public finance implications of fewer people shopping and working downtown. It was pretty busy downtown yesterday, I will say. And that may have been everybody taking advantage of a limited window of opportunity to get some some holiday shopping in. But it it certainly felt like it was well on its way back to uh to being the downtown shopping of of old. So we'll just have to kind of see how that shakes out. Um, yeah. So uh, does that mean that you guys uh, waited in line and had to drive around for parking spaces and all of those those pre-pandemic uh, shopping gripes? All of the above. All of the above. Yeah. But, <laughs> Wonderful. Uh, yeah, exactly. Exactly. But given given the last couple of years and given what we know about what all that means for uh, state and local revenues, those are, those are good gripes to have, I suppose. So you know, Liz, the we're we're coming out of now uh, a couple of years worth of debate around policing and uh, public safety generally, and and how we pay for it and how it ought to be delivered. A lot of that debate was brought on uh, in the summer of 2020, and the the whole debate around defund the police, which I know is a term that we've both quibbled with uh, at times, but uh, defund the police. That whole movement certainly brought to light questions of, again, how we pay for policing, how policing is delivered, what it means to have a safe community. And there were some obviously very contentious, uh, there was a contentious debate and there were strong perspectives on both sides of that debate. But if there was one area where everyone seemed to agree was that we could do a better job with funding and providing services in the area of mental health and behavioral health, particularly when it comes to crisis response in that space. And uh, we're lucky today to have Beth Goldberg from the city of Kirkland, Washington on to tell us about some efforts up in, in her part of the world where they've done exactly that, where they've, they've stood up a, a regional authority that's providing a community crisis response that is designed to provide the sorts of services that police departments are often either unable to or, or in some cases don't, simply don't have the resources or the expertise to provide. And so that's a, a really, really important discussion and a, and a key part of where a lot of state and local finance is headed. 
Before we talk to her, we want to talk just a little bit more generally about some of the trends that we're seeing in that space. I know this that we've, again, we've both at times uh, had views on defund the police and if nothing else, just the, the way that that debate has been framed. When you think about public safety finance and, and where things are headed, what, uh, what are your thoughts on, on all that? Yeah, more than once I have thought to myself, I wish whoever came up with that defund the police phrase had come up with something a little more nuanced, but then of course it wouldn't have caught on because it's really not about taking you know, all of the money away from police. Um, and, and certainly there has been a lot of public controversy and antagonism uh, because, of, because of the extremism of, of that phrase. But really, it, you're right. What it means is it's more like reall reallocating resources to where they're needed most, which is not catchy at all. <laughs> but it is about, so cops are, and I I've, I've have a couple of friends who either were in law, law enforcement or still are, and it is, it's brutal on them to be dispatched into situations which they are not qualified for and they don't, um, it is super challenging for, for law enforcement as well to be put into these situations and to do something based on the training they have. And the training they have is not adequate for what the, the moment that they're actually facing, which is a mental health crisis moment in a lot of cases. And so I've seen some pilots in, in a couple of different areas um, called some form or another of cops and clinicians where uh, a behavioral health expert or counselor is sent out on with it with a police officer on a 911 call um, there's also 911 diversion programs where the 911 dispatcher makes the call as to whether or not to dispatch the call on to law enforcement uh, and to have a law enforcement response or to to send it to behavioral health crisis center response um, it's a much needed uh, and long overdue modification to moments of crisis uh, that that anybody in our community has the only, and for the longest time the only number we've known how to what to call is 911 and and that's starting to change which is which is great but it also means we need to send money to fund these programs and that's really what it is what this is about when we're talking about defund the police it's it's we need more money to to these other uh, social services that are so much more the appropriate response in a lot of situations that cops end up having to deal with yeah, definitely. And we excellent points. And we really, when you when you put what you just described in the in the context of kind of the larger historical view of public safety finance, there's really there's two pieces of that that really stand out that I think are often underappreciated. One of them is just as you were describing, we don't have dedicated funding sources for a lot of these kinds of services, or if we do, they're in pots of money that have shrunk as of late, particularly at the in the mental health and behavioral health side, which. Most clinicians in that space would say that pre-COVID, there was it was a fight just to kind of maintain the status quo, and then suddenly there's this huge surge in demand for those services and a, and a redeployment of those types of skills into very different settings, like that co-responder model that you were describing. So the idea that suddenly now there there's a willingness to entertain dedicated revenue streams, or maybe even diverting some existing revenues to those kinds of services is a massive shift in local public finance. And I think we're just starting to understand the scope of that. The second piece, and I, which I think is in some ways even more compelling, is the fact that the police departments are willing to engage in this discussion at all. And I remember when I started working in local government, 
the city manager that I worked for said, rule number one of local government budgeting is the police get what the police request and nobody asks questions. And I think that was the model in a lot of local governments for a long time was that public safety was just so important and so complex and so in its own world and its own set of rules and requirements and culture that most local budgeting officials, especially by and large, didn't ask a lot of questions, or if they did, they were questions more about the size of the expansion or the size of the of the, of the of the request for the next year, rather than these really fundamental questions about what is it that public safety does? What does it mean for public safety to do what it does well? What's the connection between resources and what public safety does? And so to have this discussion at all is a monumental shift in, a, in the context of something that police and uh, and everybody else involved in this debate seems to agree is both long overdue and absolutely the, the the necessary next step. So it'll be really interesting to see how all this shakes out, but it has been um, pretty remarkable to watch just how quickly a lot of this, uh, this these dynamics that we're describing have played out. Well, we are pleased to welcome now to the Public Money Pod, Beth Goldberg, who is the Deputy City Manager for the City of Kirkland, Washington, and has been doing some very interesting work around funding and providing services in the area of crisis response. Beth, welcome to the pod. It's a pleasure to have you. Thrilled to be here. Thank you for having me. So I think first and foremost, it would help our listeners just to, to better understand the context here. Can you mind uh, telling us a little bit just more about Kirkland, where it sits in greater Seattle, uh, for anyone who's unfamiliar with uh, where you all are in the region? Yes. Yeah, so uh, Kirkland, Washington is a suburb of Seattle, about 90,000 people, more, a little more than 90,000 people reside in the city of Kirkland. We're on the shores, uh, the eastern shores of Lake Washington and consider we're neighboring Redmond, Washington, which is the headquarters of uh, Microsoft. And obviously Amazon has a big footprint here. So um, a very um, tech focused Google has um, a campus and is expanding their presence here in the city of Kirkland. And in terms of governance, uh, Kirkland is a city manager form of government. Um, we are within King County, which is the largest county in Washington state. Uh, we operate our own police department. We're responsible for the law enforcement, uh, public safety uh, components of serving our residents. But with mental health services, that primarily falls to uh, the county, that that is a county-wide responsibility, but there are, there are overlaps um, in the functions. So our council, our city council, tends to be um, not afraid to take on and tackle tough issues and to innovate, um, which really helps us, you know, get involved in some, some interesting issues trying to, again, um, serve our communities the best way we can. So let's talk about some of those uh, creative responses, and, because you all have, have developed a, a community 
health responder model. And so can you tell us about what that is and uh, how it differs from what you all were previously doing? Our system, and I'm talking a global system, is set up, you call 911. And the response is either from police or fire, um, neither of which are generally particularly well-trained in behavioral health issues. Um, In recent years, um, with the murder of George Floyd and um, a a growing awareness that police may not be, police fire may not be um, best suited to respond to those um, suffering from mental health, behavioral health, there's been um, not just here in Kirkland, but nationally kind of a, a look at how can we best serve those individuals, which is where um, you're starting to see community response, co-response programs that are sending um, mental health professionals to respond to 911 calls that have a behavioral health component. And the idea is, is to you know, let law enforcement fire focus on where they should be focusing on and um, treating a a health condition. Mental health is a health condition with people trained in mental health. I know we definitely do want to hear more about that, that process. Um, But just for, for the sake of our, our listeners who are wondering about doing something similar, I mean, this doesn't happen quickly. Can you tell us a little bit about the timeline and, and how long it took? When did you officially launch? There are a couple of layers to to that story. So in 2019, the city of Kirkland, along with uh, the cities of Bothell, Kenmore, Lake Forest Park, and Shoreline, joined forces in using countywide sales tax levy called the MID, the Mental Illness Drug Dependency Sales Tax. Um, in 2000, starting in 2019, along with some other funding, grant funding, to launch uh, the North Sound Radar Program, um, which is a, a co-response model, meaning that the mental health professionals are riding alongside police and are responding alongside police to those with behavioral health issues. So that program was launched in 2019, um, entirely grant funded, um, was staffed or is staffed primarily by contract mental health professionals, not FTEs, although a few FTEs have been added since. Um, and that program was um, is successful. Um, the community appreciates it. Law enforcement appreciates it. And then in 2020, with the murder of George Floyd, the Kirkland City Council um, launched a public safety initiative that set a series of goals designed to um, reserve law enforcement response where law enforcement response is needed, but where we could, you know, back off from there and in the case of behavioral health calls. And sometimes it's both. Sometimes a behavioral health can also present itself as a public safety issue, but sometimes it won't. And so decided to launch in uh, a community responder program. Um, Co-response programs involve mental health professionals writing along with police. 
community responder programs in its purest form involve mental health professionals responding without police. The goal is to uh, deploy our community responders in pairs without police where appropriate, but we also recognize sometimes there will need to be both. So currently operating more as a hybrid model with this longer term goal in mind. So that, that was happening. And then the North Sound Radar program, the program manager started talking about how we'd really like to expand our the, the services provided through through radar to have more coverage because the staffing levels were such as I described as fairly limited um, hours of coverage. Um, wanted to expand, and maybe I should back up and say that the Kirkland program also, the goal, we're not there yet, but the goal had been 24-7 coverage um, so that we, we would always have someone available. So beginning of 2022, uh, the North Sound Radar program started talking to the other four cities about how they would like to expand and also like to create a funding model so that it wasn't going to be reliant on grant funding. Uh, because as both of you know, grant funding is terrific. Um, it oftentimes allows um, entities to launch programs to augment funding, but it is not always the most reliable source of ongoing funding. The four cities said, yes, we, we want to do this, approached Kirkland about also contributing more funding, more, more general fund support to the program to allow for this expansion. And maybe I should back up and say Kirkland is the largest of the five cities. Um, that's important context in this. And our city manager, um, you know, took pause because we were already contributing, you know, well over a million dollars a year to our community responder program. Couldn't justify, I think at the time I, they were asking like $400,000, $500,000 from the city of Kirkland to support this expansion. And it was really difficult to justify our community responder program plus additional support for the radar program. So discussions began in earnest at that point of, well, what would happen if we merged the community responder program with the radar program and made it into a larger regional enterprise. So what we decided to do at the time was to create um, a separate legal entity, uh, a nonprofit that um, is actually housed in the city of Kirkland, meaning city of Kirkland will act as the fiscal agent, administrative agent, but the, the program will be independent with an executive director that will be appointed by the board to um, lead the program. And the interlocal agreement that establishes what we're calling the Regional Crisis Response Agency or RACER takes effect uh, January 1st, 2023. Um, and since this is a finance program, maybe I should mention the dollars. So total biennial budget for the agency is uh, $5.4 million. About 400,000 of that is set up costs. 
and uh, the cities are contributing about four million of the costs with the balance coming from grants. Um, so there's still a small reliance on grants, but primarily from our general funds. Um, and it will be a 13 FTE operation with a goal of providing 24 seven coverage. The, the responders will have their own vehicles, will arrive separately at the scene from police and can triage of, you know, should it just be the responders? Should it be police and responders? Should it fire be involved? Things of that nature. Well, very, very interesting. So, you know, one question that comes to mind right away, if it were this easy, everyone would be doing it. Certainly from a finance standpoint, I can imagine one immediate challenge would be commingling everybody's general fund dollars with a nonprofit was is that as challenging as it as it would seem like it could be? Not as challenging. I, I would say maybe the challenging part, and then I'll I'll I'll, I'll talk about the nonprofit. Um, Washington State and cities within Washington State are heavily dependent on property tax revenue, the growth of which is capped at one percent per year, um, and then the other uh, larger kind of city tax is sales tax, which, as you also know, can be volatile. And depending on the makeup of your city, if you've got large retail commercial, you will have more sales tax than than um, a more of a, re- a smaller residential community. For a city like Kirkland, who was already contributing funds and basically were contributing most of the costs of the program is intended to be split on a per capita basis over time, but in this initial biennium, Kirkland said, okay, we were already contributing a couple million over over the biennium to the program. We will continue, even though it's more than our per capita share, um, to make it easier for the other cities to ease in. So they're, they're contributing less than their per capita share for the time being, although we've got a goal over time of, of per capita, potentially also augmented with caseload as we get more caseload data. Uh, the challenge in terms of finding the funding was some of the cities that are more reliant on property tax and don't have specific um, levies dedicated to uh, public safety did have difficult a difficulty finding the funds to support the program. So that was that was one challenge. Um, in terms of the nonprofit in Kirkland's role as the fiscal and administrative agent, we will set up a separate accounting system. And I don't know how common this is in other parts of the country. Certainly in Washington state, it's a model that is um, used somewhat commonly to provide services to local jurisdictions, multiple jurisdictions. So for example, our dispatch um, function, Kirkland's dispatch function, we're part of a regional coalition that um, handles dispatch calls. There is a separate entity, it's called NORCOM, that um, we contribute to, and they're providing the dispatch services to its member cities. There is a governing board that governs it. So this is following that model. The money from the other cities and, and the grant funds we receive will come into the city of Kirkland as the fiscal agent, but be monitored in a separate 
fund an accounting structure that is subject to um, a separate audit. Um, and that's kind of the, the flow of the finances. And one of the advantages is that if this was a standalone agency, it would have to have its own finance shop, its own HR shop, its own, you know, attorney services, IT, things of that nature, by having it as, as an independent yet affiliated program within the city of Kirkland, they're going to pay us overhead for those back office type functions, but it's more efficient economies of scale rather than than setting up whole units within um, the entity to handle those responsibilities. So a region not unfamiliar with uh, cooperating, I imagine that helps somewhat in, in, in this whole process? Yeah, I would say that it is not a model that is unfamiliar to the region. And then the other thing that that helped is that the five cities, this coalition of five cities, uh, had a history of working together on the radar program. And what is unique about this is oftentimes you hear of regional programs and you've got... um, infighting and, you know, I'm contributing more, therefore I get to dictate how things work. What is unique about this is that has not really been present. Certainly Kirkland is contributing more. Our council has some some priorities that we we integrated into this, but it Um, although maybe I'm not in the best position to say this, but I think if you asked others involved in the coalition, they would say that the level of cooperation and and the speed at which we have made these changes is is really quite remarkable um, and and makes this this unique. Um, You know, I have often said that co-response, community response services is not, you know, we're not on the cutting edge of of that uh, per se. This is a service that is being provided by lots of local governments. But what is unique about this is the regional nature of it, our ability to have more coverage for our residents by working together as a regional coalition. um, And you know, behavioral health issues don't know city boundaries. So, you know, someone could, um, suffering from behavioral health issues could be in Bothell, for example, one day and then be in Kirkland, but it's, you know, they, they need help and, and we all benefit from those individuals getting help. Kirkland in particular, um, we have a, a major hospital here. There have been instances, for example, where someone with a behavioral health uh, issue is brought from, for example, Shoreline or, you know, any of the other cities to Evergreen Hospital um, as, and this may be a topic of a whole nother podcast also, um, without, um, you know, really at this point, Um, without other treatment options, many people with behavioral health issues are being taken either to emergency rooms or jails. um, And um, they're not always set up for this. So it's not, it's not uncommon for people to be released from Evergreen, the ER, 
not completely treated. And then because the emergency room is in Kirkland, if, you know, there is then, you know, issues with folks acting out or still struggling, often it could be Kirkland police getting involved, but it could be a case that originated in, a, in another city. So that's, that's another um, advantage of looking at this, uh, looking at this regionally. You mentioned hospitals and the healthcare community, Beth. I can imagine that standing something like this up requires buy-in and participation and maybe even financing or, or financial implications from a, a whole range of other kinds of nonprofit and, and private partners. Is, is that the case here? A little bit more tangentially. So this, the hospitals aren't the ones going on the street responding. So from that perspective, it's it's a little bit less tied in um, where, where you potentially see um, more opportunities for this partnership. Um, but one of the things maybe I'll pivot to is there's a term often used in this area, this field with regard to responding to those with behavioral health issues. You need someone to call, which the national 988 system and the 911 system serve. So that's, that's the someone to call. Someone to respond is this regional crisis response agency that we have just created. And then the third component of it is someplace to go. So sometimes a crisis responder will be able to address an individual's needs, get them linked to services on, you know, kind of that a short response is, is enough. But um, those who are suffering more acutely, um, and these are the ones that are currently ending up in jails or the emergency rooms that aren't necessarily set up for this type of treatment, that someplace to go is a missing component in all of this. So simultaneous to this, um, the five cities have been working on um, getting a crisis stabilization clinic sited in North King County that would serve as a resource not only for our responders, um, our, our, our fire, our law enforcement personnel to take those suffering acutely from a behavioral health issue to get that short-term treatment that they need and then access to wraparound services. So we're simultaneously working on that. And for something like that, um, there are definitely opportunities um, for uh, multiple funding sources, um, grants, state funding, county funding, things of that nature, um, and federal funding, because the treatment is often funded through um, Medicaid dollars. So there's, there's that combination um, of, of financing in place. So we are earnestly working on getting a price stabilization clinic here in North King County. Uh, we have a provider identified. We have secured some, um, some state um, and county funding. Um, and um, I, I'm not in a position to announce any more details about that now, but that is, that is a thir the third component that we are all working on. And certainly there could be some interplay 
with um, Evergreen Hospital. Um, I don't foresee funding from the hospital, but some partnership potentially could be there and alleviating some pressure on, on, on hospital beds, which um, we also know post-COVID is, is also a challenge um, systemically. This occurred to me when you mentioned auditing earlier on and in the kind of cursory reading I've, I've done previously on mental health response programs, a lot of them do have this audit, not auditing component, but a, an evaluation component uh, to look at, you know, how many maybe 911 dispatch calls did we end up not doing? Um, how many ambulance runs did we save? That kind of thing. And uh, is that something that, that may be part of what you all are doing uh, in this program to kind of look at the, the broader financial impact savings, mental health impact? Um, we have a task before us to be looking at different metrics, again, not just from a, an effectiveness perspective, but also from um, a financial perspective of what might other metrics be that we should be looking at in terms of allocating costs. You know, maybe there is a city that has a higher population, but a lower number of calls or vice versa, or maybe it's, you know, per capita is kind of representative of the workload. So one of the, the first tasks for the agency, or maybe not one of the first tasks, eight, an important um, startup task is gonna be to start looking at what kind of data should we be collecting? And then what does that data say in terms of equitability of, of cost allocation moving forward? Yeah, for sure. And I suppose that it, it might raise some questions too down the line about cost savings downstream around public safety, around any number of other areas where you're spending money that you might not otherwise spend. Correct. And there's, you know, there's a, there's a, a a healthy debate going on now about, you know, should you get with with the defund the police um, movement, and again, that's a whole nother podcast, perhaps. But um, but um, with the how much should should um, jurisdictions be investing in law enforcement versus alternatives to law enforcement and. Some are taking the approach, you know, kind of the rip the bandaid off approach of, you know, literally defund the police um, and divert um, resources to other areas. Um, some are taking the approach of, okay, let's build those alternatives and then see its impact and then make adjustments um, based on based on that impact and you know and where where the funds are needed and that's more of the approach that uh that the five cities are taking uh with this um again i i think i mentioned earlier in our discussion that the cities with a healthier revenue base that are um got more robust than just than just property tax and that could be you know sales tax or it could be um, levies, um, extra property tax levies that are dedicated for public safety um, did have, as we were contemplating this regional approach, an easier time with the finances than those that didn't have those, those levies or more robust tax base. So as we get 
get down the line with this, you know, if we're seeing impacts and opportunities to adjust allocations of funding that will, I'm sure that'll be a discussion that will be had both from the regional programs perspective, but also from an individual city perspective um, when they're looking at their, at their budgets and mixes of services. Well, thank you, Beth, uh, so, so very much for taking the time to uh, share your insights here on the Public Money Pod. Really interesting program, really, really salient issues, and we really appreciate you taking the time to uh, tell us about your experience with them. Glad to have the opportunity. Well, thanks again to Beth Goldberg for joining us to talk about some of the work that's happening in greater Seattle around providing the, the kinds of mental and behavioral crisis response that a lot of other communities would like to be able to provide. Really great insights from Beth and uh, hopefully for anyone thinking about taking their services in that direction, she offered up some some useful insights. We certainly think she did. So now it's always, it's time for a listener question in our extra credit segment. And this week's question is a particularly unique one. And it has to do with a connection between two things that we often maybe wouldn't connect. And that is Taylor Swift and the municipal bond market. Hi, my name is Emily Barnett. I am a second year MPP student at the Harris School of Public Policy. I'm originally from Columbus, Ohio. And my question is, during the Taylor Swift Ticketmaster debacle, I heard a lot of talk about ticket flippers. I've also heard of flippers in the municipal bond market. Does the term flippers mean the same thing in these two very different settings? Well, that is an excellent question. And, you know, Liz, I, I know I don't want to speak for you. I don't necessarily sit around thinking of opportunities to connect Taylor Swift to public finance, but we definitely won't. <laughs> uh, we're we're going to make the most of this opportunity that's been presented to us because it's an interesting uh, way to look at this. I mean, the, the the simple answer to the question is yes. In fact, the the, the, the flipping that is that the question is alluding to does exist in both of these markets and it exists in basically the same way and for basically the same reasons. Uh, but when we, when we look at, the two different markets in question here, right? The market for concert tickets and the municipal bond market, they actually have a lot in common. And there's, there's kind of two main characteristics that we can think of that make both of those markets unique. And the first is what we would call monopsony pricing. We're all familiar with monopoly pricing from the game Monopoly and elsewhere. A monopoly is a situation where we have uh, very few sellers of a particular item. Monopsony pricing is the opposite of that. And that's a market where we have relatively few buyers. And when we have relatively few buyers, we see certain kinds of dynamics emerge. And those are exactly the kinds of dynamics that we're seeing play out in both the market for concert tickets, particularly Taylor Swift tickets and the municipal bond market. So when you look at what happened in the, in the Taylor Swift debacle, as I understand it, um, what I've heard was all the things that you would fully expect to, <laughs> to see and hear in a market with relatively few buyers. In this case, they're trying to sell concert tickets. The, the broker Ticketmaster is the main, if not the only buyer for those tickets. And then Ticketmaster turns around and distributes those tickets to fans we have a similar situation in the municipal bond market. There's what we call underwriters. These are uh, by and large investment banks 
who take the bonds from the issuer, from the, the city or the county or the hospital district or whoever is selling those bonds, and then distribute those bonds to the ultimate buyers, the ultimate investors who buy those bonds. Same same idea. It'd be very difficult for Taylor Swift to go sell tickets directly to her fans in much the same way it would be very difficult for a city or a county to go sell its bonds directly to individuals, although there have been some attempts to do both of those things. But as often happens in uh, prices in, in markets with monopsony pricing, you get a lot of consolidation on the buyer side, and that can lead to a, a lot of power on the side of the buyers to set prices and to capture rents and to you know, generally crowd out other kinds of potential competition in the market. One of the things that tends to happen is the market doesn't work nearly as well as it can or should from a technological perspective. We've seen, as I understand it, one of the big concerns in the Taylor Swift debacle was that Ticketmaster's platform broke down and made it just about impossible for anyone to buy tickets. We've had similar criticisms of the municipal bond market that it technologically is not nearly as advanced as it could or should be and is not nearly as advanced as it as uh, compared to other kinds of markets for, say, corporate bonds. And there's probably something to that, although proponents of the market would say it works well enough, even if it is a little bit inefficient. But there are undoubtedly um, some of those kinds of parallels. And then another huge concern that we see in both of those markets, and this gets to the flipping uh, point, is that when you have a, a consolidated base of buyers, it becomes possible for buyers to either collude with each other or at least to work together to try to extract as much as possible from the sellers. So flipping in the Taylor Swift context meant that there were uh, buyers who posed as uh, fans who had signed up for a pre-sale of tickets. And in fact, they were either uh, Ticketmaster folks or Ticketmaster affiliates. Those tickets were sold in what was intended to be a, a very straightforward, transparent, early pricing situation. But those tickets were then purchased and turned around and flipped in the what we call the secondary market, flipped once they were sold originally for much higher prices. And you heard of people you know, buying tickets out in the secondary market for $20,000, $30,000, something like that. And that was simply because those were the only tickets that were available. There have been some concerns about flipping in the municipal bond market as well. Not so much as of late, but there was a, a series of studies that were done about a decade ago because there were concerns that there were... Uh, bond brokers and dealers who were going out into the market and posing as retail investors, posing as as the investors that we hope uh, receive the bonds at at transparent prices and buying those bonds and then turning around and flipping them in the secondary market, selling them for a considerable profit. So when that happens, the ultimate loser is taxpayers because bonds are being purchased at prices much lower than they should be. And so taxpayers end up paying more much the same way that concert goers end up paying much more for the same kinds of tickets. And so the question of what to do becomes a, a really interesting one. There's lots of uh, proposals to make information more available, more transparency. Uh, some even go so far as to say that you ought to break up uh, markets with monopsony pricing, that there ought to be uh, either regulation or some sort of intervention to, to try to have more buyers. But for now, uh, it is, in fact, fair to say that the flipping that we heard about in the market for Taylor Swift tickets is very similar to the kind of flipping that we've seen in the municipal bond market. So that's a lot. Uh, Liz, feel free to comment as much or as little as you would like on uh, the uh, obtuse connections that I was able to draw there. 
Well, I'm just going to add, in addition to Taylor Swift and Monopoly, one more kind of pop culture reference here. And it, because what you were describing, especially in terms of the secondary market, reminds me of sports tickets, tickets for a a game, and how the value of that can go up and down on, on Ticketmaster or wherever, depending on how well the team is doing that year. So I'm actually... Uh, pitching a question back to you, Justin, to uh, see if you can kind of explain a little bit, at least in terms of muni bonds and interest rates, because we have rising interest rates now on in the overall market. What kind of effect does that have on the secondary market? Yeah, that's a great question and a great a great parallel. You know, with the thing with the thing with bonds, whether it's muni bonds or corporate bonds or even treasury bonds, is that the value really does depend in large part on what's happening in the market. And it depends in large part on how valuable that stream of cash flows that you're receiving from that investment is relative to other potential investments that you could make. So as interest rates go up, bonds that are in the market that are paying a, a certain coupon, paying a certain interest rate suddenly can look a lot less attractive if they're paying interest rates that are below what's available in the market. So in much the same way that in, in your sports team metaphor, if you're if you happen to have, you know, be a season ticket holder, the value of those tickets, if the team is not very good, if you're looking to sell them is very, very different than the prospects. If they're about to make the playoffs and you're willing to sell the exact same ticket, suddenly they're much more valuable. And again, it's all relative to what's going on in the market, what's going on in the broader context. And so one of the big concerns, anytime you're an investor or you're managing a portfolio of municipal bond investments is that as interest rates go up, the bonds that you have in your portfolio can suddenly look a lot less interesting to investors who can put their money into something that is coming out now that's paying a much higher interest rate. And so if you're an issuer, if you're a, if you're a city and you're thinking about when to go to the market, this is a this is a pretty uncertain time because there's a, a case to be made to get out sooner than later before rates continue to go up. But there's also a case to be made to sit tight and wait because rates may stabilize or even go back down, in which case you're going to get ultimately a better deal for taxpayers. We haven't lived in this world in a long time. Interest rates simply have been at, at record lows for the better part of a decade now and have been declining generally since the Great Recession in 2008. And so we're just relearning you know, how to go about navigating a market where interest rates are a real factor in a way that they have not been for munis in a long time. Much the same way that if you were a fan of pick your team, I don't know, the Detroit Lions perhaps who are winning for the first time in, in a long time, it does raises some questions about the value of of those tickets and whether you should buy in now or or wait. So that's the uh, a fair comparison, I think, between the muni market and, and uh, interest rates and professional sports. Making the muni market spicy. <laughs> <laughs> yes, or something like that. The Public Money Pod is a production of the Center for Municipal Finance at the University of Chicago's Harris School of Public Policy and is made possible in part by our sponsors, Build America Mutual, Cumberland Advisors, and the Government Finance Officers Association. To learn more about the center, check out our website, municipalfinance.uchicago.edu. If you'd like to ask a question for our extra credit segment, send a voice memo to publicmoneypod at uchicago.edu. 
To see more of Liz Farmer's work, visit her website, farmersfieldonline.com, and her Substack, which is substack.lizfarmer.com. And you can also find her at Twitter at Liz Farmer Tweets. And thanks, as always, to our esteemed producer, Eric Gaber. If you like the podcast, be sure to follow us, drop a review, and tell your network. That's all for now. We'll catch you next time. Bye.